This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by HSI. This episode was recorded November 1st, 2021. My name is Jill James, HSI's Chief Safety Officer, and today I'm joined by Linda Tapp. Linda is president of Safety Fundamentals a publish- and publisher of the Safety Training Net, a monthly safety training newsletter, which is available in both English and Spanish. Linda has written several books on using safety training activities to make training more effective and most recently wrote a book focusing on safety training retention scheduled to be published by the American Society of Safety Professionals in 2022. Linda is also a certified safety professional and is also one of only a handful of CSPs to hold the Certified Professional in Training Development Certification through the Association for Talent Development. Linda, welcome to the show. Hi, great to be here. Well, Linda, I'm excited to hear your story on how it is you got into this um, lovely land of all things health and safety. How did you find yourself in this profession? I think like many people, I never knew it existed until it found me. Um, I started Mm -hmm. off as an undergraduate at Drexel in Philadelphia as a biology major. And if you know Drexel, it's a co-op school, which means that you go to school for six months and then you work for six months and you do that for five years. So you graduate, you know, year after most of your friends but it's, mm. it's worth it in the end. You get out with 18 months of experience. And wow. for my co-op assignments, I worked for Arco Chemical Company. And my job was there was a toxicologist assistant, which really meant that I just did tons of research for the toxicologists that were working on the hazard communication standard, which had only recently been out. So Arco, mm-hmm. Arco really had to go and do you know an MSDS for all of their products. So they had a a whole group of students who did the, the grunt work, which and it provided the um, the packets of info to the toxicologist. So that was kind of my first taste to it. I still didn't really realize that safety was a thing. That mm-hmm. was uh, part of the ARCO's EHS division, but still didn't click at all. Mm-hmm. Um, then looking to graduate, you know, back in those days, companies would come and put up notices on bulletin boards when they had job openings. There was, there was <laughs> nothing online, you know, so. Uh, right. Right, right. And as you're, as you're saying that about job, so there's two things that have dated both you and I in terms of how long we've been in this field. One, the first was MSDS. So for any of our, so for any of our listeners who are new-ish to the health and safety profession, that's what an SDS was called before, (laughs) before. So MSDS. And then yes, the old fashioned job board where people like hung up job things. So please, please continue. Yeah. You'd have to run to that, that job board and hope you saw the announcement in time. And a, a company came and the announcement was very vague and said, it's a new company and any science and engineering majors could apply for this you know, mysterious job. So, <laughs> you know, I knew I didn't want to work in a laboratory and working for Arco was all, you know, office-based, you know, I considered science stuff. I didn't have to be in a lab. So I applied and interviewed and found out it was for um, an environmental insurance company and they were mm-hmm. looking for loss control representatives. So I mm-hmm. still had no idea what, what that was. And loss control still confuses so many people mm-hmm. when you it think sure about does. what Lord loss control means. So I thought, well, this sounds good. It's not in a lab and it actually paid more than many of the other bio jobs, which were, you know, very low level technician jobs. Mm-hmm. So I, I uh, started working for this company. I was the sixth employee, which is kind oh, of wow. crazy. Um, there were two of us right out of school, and um, that's another story about me and the, the guy they both 
offered uh, jobs from that class, offering him 8,000 more a year than me, but that's another path to go oh, down. Man. But that's, uh, I joined this company, the only female, six of us, um, eventually grew to about 20 people, but it was formed, if you remember, this is going to date us to Jill, the AHERA standards. Do you remember yes. those? So it was kind of formed in response to AHERA, which for people who might not know what that is, it's the asbestos standards. And all of a sudden there were contractors popping up everywhere to remove asbestos, mostly in schools, but everywhere. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those jobs required insurance. So they, they had this pack of us that would go out to job sites, meet with these asbestos contractors and see what safety procedures they had in place. So that was my, the bulk of my job in the beginning. Uh, as part of that job, my direct boss said, hey, we want you to take uh, NIOSH 582. And that's very specific to it. I believe it doesn't exist anymore, but it was a program to sample and evaluate asbestos fibers. So he thought, you know, to give us some more street cred, I guess, out on the, the job sites, we would all be NIOSH 582 certified. So went to this NIOSH 582 class, which was held at Temple in Philadelphia, which is where I'm from. And the instructor of the class started talking to me and said, hey, you know, we have a brand new master's in environmental health program that starts tonight. You know, why don't you come? So it was that easy. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I think he was really desperate for students because uh, he had not seen my undergrad grades, which were not good. <laughs> um, and I probably wouldn't have got in if it was a normal application procedure. So, um, you know, right out of school, it was three months after I graduated and I started going down there two nights a week. Um, and in four years, ended up with a master's in environmental health. But some of those classes, you know, was toxicology, epidemiology, all the traditional things. Uh, mm -hmm. Also had one safety class, and that kind of opened my eyes to, wow, this is a whole thing that people do. This is a profession. Mm -hmm. So I started, you know, I spent three years with the insurance company, but really wanted to move into manufacturing so I could get really deep into certain areas and not just be kind of a, you know, fly-in safety person at the construction site, because I didn't see those asbestos contractors more than once or twice generally. So after three years, I did move to pharmaceutical industry in my first mm -hmm. traditional safety supervisor role. And, and from there, just stayed. Wow. And, and so when you were working in the insurance industry as loss control person, um, <laughs> yeah. And so that was specific to, um, in support of, or of the asbestos abatement mm -hmm. industry at that time. Okay. So you didn't, you didn't necessarily get to see all kinds of different work environments like a lot of yeah all asbestos guys and most of those guys knew you know less about safety than i did we were all kind of like okay i, I just started setting up on standards and trying to see what they knew and those guys really formed really quickly it was a big money-making opportunity for them there were yeah. so many schools especially in new jersey where i was based um, that were doing tons of work but we ended up flying you know all over the country to see contractors like non-stop because everyone needed insurance so it was yeah. a really successful business for them. You know, of course, they went out of business since then, but sure, they, sure. Uh, you know, it was really, really a big deal. And then they kind of spun into lead abatement in the end because I think they saw all the asbestos stuff dying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So did you ever figure out why loss control was the name of the jo job? Yeah, eventually it's like, well, my, my boss had said, you know, you need to get your ALCM, which, you know, if you're familiar with insurance certifications, uh, it's associated loss control management, which I did take. It's, it's five tests. It's similar to the ARM, which many more people have. That's associate risk management, which is only three tests. And unfortunately, again, the, the institutes for insurance who offer those stopped offering the ALCM. So 
I rarely even put that down anymore because so many people have no idea what, what that one even yeah. is. So okay. the ALCM was a really good education as well and the whole insurance side of things, which, you know, as exciting as it sounds, you know, you had to learn all those insurance words and contracts and terminology. So my boss said I had to get that. He said you should also do CIH, CSP, which I did one of those and then also told me I should get my master's and I, I did that as well. And he also told me to join ASSP. So he was very prescriptive in what he wanted in his in his loss control people. With the eight thousand dollars a year loss. Yes, with with well, I did I did call him out on it and did get the same amount in the end. So yeah, which was a big risk, honestly, and I tell people that because, you know, yeah. back then it wasn't that uncommon to get paid less. But yeah. and I desperately needed a job and the risk of him not offering me a job at the end was was really scary. I mean, I paid for school myself. I had jillions of loans. I had worked, you know, two, three jobs during school. So the thought of me just saying, oh, I don't want to work for a while was not an option. So it, yeah. it was kind of a big deal to say, hey, I think you made a mistake. <laughs> and yeah. and it was that was his answer was, oh, it was a, it was an error in what we wrote down. It was a mistake. So, OK, we're all happy now. So Way to advocate <laughs> well, for well, We're all happy. And, you know, as you know, how most races go, it's a percentage of what you make, you know, every yeah. year increase. So you're starting off way low. Yeah. And, you know, you never catch up if you don't start at the same amount. That's right. That's right. Mm. Way to advocate for yourself. So you moved from, and and for those who followed you. Um, so you moved right into pharmaceutical industry. Way different animal in terms of regulatory landscape. Yeah, what was that like? I mean, you came, you came in with all these, with all this cred now and certifications. Yeah, I, I did. And it was, um, it was a good, I say it was a good spin job because to sell myself as being someone who could work in that industry, having been just with asbestos contractors was a little bit of a repackaging of yourself. Yeah, right. um, but you know, I still had to know all the standards and in insurance. I still had to talk to all different levels of employees, you know, down from the, the construction worker who you know, didn't finish high school to the CEOs of these, you know, very large construction companies sometimes. So I could use a lot of those skills from that first job and package them for the pharmaceutical. And I, you know, it was great interviews, got along great with people. So I think it was really a lot of the, um, just the chemistry with the people I interviewed with there that, that helped me get that job. Hmm. How long did you stick in, stick with, the, or I guess, you know, what did you learn from the pharmaceutical industry? Uh, I learned it was a lot different than construction, you know, it was a, a lot different as far as just um, how much more serious people were with, with listening to the rules. Honestly, the construction was a little eye-opening um, with yeah. trying to, you know, especially the sites I went to, there was nothing else around usually. It was abandoned school buildings very often, so there wasn't a lot of oversight from anyone um, yeah. Not like pharmaceutical, they had all kinds of inspections for, for everybody. And I also saw a pharmaceutical that sometimes the pharmaceutical, the um, CGMPs, they're called the procedures or the policies and rules, um, conflict sometimes with safety procedures. Like you have to use a certain levels of alcohol and pharmaceutical and the safety side of me was like, no, no, you can't do that. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, that was that was fun. Um, also, just learning a lot about pharmaceutical industry, which gets a bad rap very often, but just seeing how much time and money goes into the research side, it helps you understand a yeah. little bit how they have to charge for, you know, so much more stuff. So I got to see that business side of it, which I did really start to appreciate. Yeah. 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 I, I had, I worked in support of pharmaceutical industry for a while as well. And it was 
uh, yeah, it was very eye-opening, particularly the numbers of procedures that are written. It was just like, oh my gosh, you think, you think, you think safety has a lot? It's <laughs> yeah. And expiration <laughs> so dates. Many. And that's what I, I, you know, yeah. I tell yeah. my kids, cause they're always like, you can't take that, you know, that, you know, aspirin, it's expired. I'm like, no, it's fine. Cause I know from then like how much longer things work or things are good after that, you know, expiration date stamped yeah. on it. Cause there's, yeah. there's like a safety factor added. And so I'm always like, no, it's fine. It's not, yeah, expired. Yeah. it's fine. Right. So right. I did pick that up there. Yeah. So what happened after pharmaceutical industry? Well, pharmaceutical, um, which I loved, I love manufacturing. Um, mm. I had a chance to move to London with my husband and you know he came home one day and said my my firm wants to know if we want to go to London for a couple of years for his job and I was you know honestly a little devastated at first because I loved this job I could imagine me being there forever uh, and I had, to, I had to quit this job and follow him you know across the ocean basically so mm-hmm. um, ended up doing that and had to figure out what I was doing at that point and that's when I started thinking about consulting and looking into consulting a little bit, but nothing really, you know, serious until I got there. So is, so is this where the story that has a turn that has something to do with the cheesecake? Like, so I, I always, just for our listeners, um, our podcast guests and I always have a conversation prior to the recording, but if they mention something that sounds interesting, like, Oh, I'm got to talk about a cheesecake. I'm like, don't tell me now. Cause I want to hear about it. So this is, this is where I get to, this is where I get to hear about it. Okay. Yeah. The cheesecake story is, is kind of famous now. Um, but I had gone to uh, the same year, right after I found out that we were moving to London, I had gone to ASSP's, you know, annual conference and it was in Las Vegas that year. And I was there as my chapter's delegate because that was a, my very first volunteer opportunity. So I went to this conference and there was a networking event around the pool at the hotel one night. And, you know, it's always hard to go to those things when you don't know anybody and you're by yourself. But went out there and I had on my name tag and it had the town I lived in at the time, which was Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And some older gentleman just came up and said, hi, I grew up in Cherry Hill. So struck up a conversation. Your name tags are a great way to start conversations with, with people. Mm-hmm. Um, had this great conversation with him. He talked about all of his favorite places in Cherry Hill, in particular this one diner that he used to go to all the time when he was younger. And he mentioned how much he loved their cheesecake. So <laughs> that's where the, the cheesecake first made its appearance in the mm-hmm. in the story. So he asked where I worked. Uh, I told him I had a job then at the pharmaceutical company, but I was moving in a few months to London and didn't know what I was going to do there. I didn't have any connections there and really didn't have another job after that time. So he said, you know, I know some people, give me your card and I'll you know, see what I can do. Or send me your resume and I'll see what I can do. So he gave me his card, said goodbye, he walks away. And then after he walks away, I look at his business card and it says he's you know, vice president of GlaxoSmithKline, like for the world, <laughs> globally. And I'm like, wow, like I couldn't have, you know, bumped into somebody randomly if I had tried to. That, that is awesome. And you were working in the pharmaceutical industry. Pharmaceutical, yeah. And he said, oh, I might know some people. So I didn't realize who he knew exactly. Too. <laughs> so I thought, all right, I want to mail him my resume the next day, like right after the conference. And mm-hmm. I didn't, um, I didn't really think much about how this would work out, but I wanted to make an impression. So I went to this diner and got the cheesecake <laughs> and I mailed my resume on top of the cheesecake to him. Um, in you know, regular mail, but there wasn't the, the shipping options there are now either. So I remember buying tons of ice and styrofoam and packing up this cheesecake myself 
and, and putting my, my resume on the top of the cheesecake and sending it off to his office in North Carolina. So I thought... <laughs> Did you seal your, your resume? And like, it, was, it was like, it was sitting in a nice envelope on top of the box. So I thought, yeah. all right, he's either going to get this and think I'm crazy or, uh-huh. or he's going to like this cheesecake. So... I didn't hear from him for for weeks. I mean, for not even weeks, for months. I never heard anything. Never heard thank you. Never heard I got it. Nothing. So I thought, oh my gosh, he thinks I'm yeah. I'm this crazy person that he met mm-hmm. at a pool who mailed him a cheesecake. And then I started thinking maybe he didn't go back home. Maybe he's on vacation and it's like this rotting cheesecake on his <laughs> on his desk in his office. So all the stories you make. All the stories. Never heard. Mm-hmm. And I still don't know what happened to the cheesecake. Honestly, he never mentioned it again. But <laughs> I I did get to London that October. Uh, I was there about five days and my phone rang and it was somebody from one of his plants saying we need to hire you as a consultant at one of our UK plants. I'm like wow. And then it happened about five or six more times. So. He spread my resume to all of his plants in the UK. I ended up consulting there for the first time. I ended up working for so many plants, which led to me working for other other pharmaceutical plants in London as well and throughout UK, actually. Um, and that was that's how I got in the consulting field because of this cheesecake, which I still wow. don't know if it got eaten, but it's the crazy you know, kind of take a risk to make an impression. And I'm sure it made some kind of impression, but, but I ended up with this uh, really amazing connections and opportunity once I got to the UK. Oh, that is so interesting. And <laughs> that's great. That's great. So That's an excellent story. So when you got to the UK, what was the regulatory landscape like for you there? I mean, was it, I, I mean, that's a, is it US-based company? So they're adhering to things from the from the US but then were there more things or how did that how did your yeah how did your learning curve on that go it, it really was was very fortunate because they thought because I was from the US that I was you know like all knowing because I think our regulations at the time I don't know how they are now were definitely a step ahead of the mm-hmm. ones they had there um, and it was kind of like, well, you're the American, what do you say? <laughs> so like, okay, this is, this is not a bad situation to be in, but I did learn their regulations when I worked on it, but you're right. They all had to comply with the U S regulations and mm-hmm. that's what they were struggling with because they didn't have the people there that had that mm-hmm. experience. So, um, yeah, it worked out really, really well. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I still love pharmaceuticals cause it's, it's all the same. Like before you get into it, you really get deep into how things are made. I love that part of the whole the whole business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that turned you on to the wild world of consulting, and apparently it stuck. It's it's stuck, and and part of that's because I did end up moving around a bit, which we had talked about. Also, I had come back from the UK, and I was I was going to keep consulting, and went back to my pharmaceutical company for a short while. Mm-hmm. And started having babies, which is the <laughs> the big curveball in there. So had my first one, went back and worked another six months, and then had my second one uh, 15 months later. And after the second one, you know, the company wasn't extremely flexible. There wasn't, you know, work from home or flexible hours then at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's when I decided to start doing my own thing from, from home. Mm-hmm. And so you then decided I've I've been a successful consultant and I'm going to like dive headlong into this entrepreneurial thing. Yeah. I, I really got the bug. Like I really, I really enjoyed making my own hours, especially when I had, and you know, I ended up with three kids, having three kids and uh, mm-hmm. just being able to, to do what I wanted to do. Like I could work in the middle of the night and do what I had to do during the day. And it's in the same thing I do now. I'll take two, three hours, middle of the days off to now and I'll go hike and come back and then work at night. So 
The flexibility yeah. was really key for me when I decided to make that move. Um, yeah. You know, the so, other crazy story I'll share with you quickly about the flexibility. Yeah. When I had my uh, third child, who's my son, who just turned 21 this summer, he was a baby. And I was doing uh, one day a week for an excavation contractor as a consultant where I would call them Friday mornings and they'd give me a list of all of their current sites and I would randomly pick which ones to show up at and mm -hmm. inspect. So didn't want to let those guys know that I was pregnant to begin with and mm -hmm. had to do these job site visits. So I would, you know, get in my Jeep and most of them, same thing, were middle of nowhere fields. It wasn't like buildings or anything. And I would just drive out there, uh, walk up, check out their site, maybe do a toolbox talk for them and then drive away. So up until about a month before I had my son, I was doing that in a very big um, windbreaker, very big jacket, <laughs> and, and they never, ever knew um, I was pregnant <laughs> the entire time. They had, they had no idea. And even after I had him, he was maybe a month old and I was still breastfeeding. I took him to some of these job sites with my mother in the backseat of the car <laughs> and, and I would I would leave him and her in the car. They wouldn't see where the car was parked at all. I'd get out, walk, do my thing and go back and go to the next job site. So that's the, the flexibility that consulting really allowed me to have. And the amazing balance. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know if it was a balance. It was kind of insane, but still, yeah, it's flexibility is really yeah. what made it work. Um, I have, yeah, similar, similar stories when I was pregnant doing, um, as, a, as an OSHA investigator, doing inspections in my really, really large bibbed overhauls with my steel toe boots on. And, uh, yeah, sitting with contractors and asking if they have anything that they're concerned about, any worries that they have on this, you know, what keeps you up at night? And instead, I got asked on a date. Oh, uh, lovely. <laughs> pregnant. Pregnant, I'm going to say. I'm pregnant. Yep. Yeah. So, yes, we have, you know, safety, health and safety professionals have lots of interesting stories. And uh, the females among us have, you know, probably an added layer. <laughs> let's just put it that way yeah so is is this about the time that safety fundamentals was born or or like yeah what were you what were you calling yourself then yeah uh, well it started yeah. off uh crown safety was um kind of started in the uk it's why it has the crown that was when i started doing oh. like traditional consulting and sure. it came back and i did tons of traditional consulting you know lots of crawling around machinery top of roofs all that good stuff which i really enjoyed for a while and now i feel like i'm yeah. kind of old and don't want to be crawling under machines anymore <laughs> but so i don't really miss that part of it so i did that uh, at least 16 16 to 20 or somewhere in that range and i eventually wow. started to uh, spin off into just the the product creation side which is what i do now so i think maybe four years ago i officially stopped the crown safety part and then focused mostly on the safety fundamentals part which is the the product creation stuff and did those simultaneously for most of the time. I think I didn't spin that off as a second company until I was doing the regular consulting for maybe six or seven years and decided mm. to do it a little differently. So yeah, so that's when it, it started. Yeah. So tell us, tell us more about safety fundamentals and, and, you know, so, so for people who can't see your logo with your company, the emphasis is on the word fun. And, um, yeah, so I know I get some flack for it sometimes because, you know, some people think safety should be all serious all the time. And I have had many people say, oh, it's not fun. How can you say it's fun? But, you know, they're not the people who need to use what I'm, I'm offering. So, right. And so you said that, yeah, so you, right. So you said the company is, is about 
product creation uh, and of course fun so um yeah how did how did you come up with this with this concept where where was this born and and of course what is it i can tell you how it comes kind of hatched was when i did a uh, i was still crown safety and i was doing a three-day supervisory leadership class for a chemical company in Kearney, new jersey and i always tell people if you don't know Kearney, it's they actually film some of the sopranos there so it's a pretty industrial kind of area um, some pretty rough guys work in that area too. So yeah. went to do this three day, as I call touchy feely class, which you know a lot of <laughs> these guys don't like because it was all safety supervisor leadership skills, things like how to mm -hmm. give feedback and how to you know talk to your, your, your people and things like that that they didn't really want to hear. Mm -hmm. So it was a, a three day <laughs> mandatory class as well. So uh, I knew what I was going into. I knew that they were going to be a little difficult. So I started doing some research and found this whole idea of accelerated learning. And there's a whole, you know, books on everything you can imagine on accelerated learning principles. And part of that is including, you know, fun, making people actually enjoy their time in a training class. So read through this book, got some ideas, did some more research and, and came up with a whole bunch of activities to include in this three day training class. So show up for the class. And again, it's another little risky idea. Just start off doing activities with this group of people. But, you know, they walked in and I, the I soprano always have soprano guys and yeah. I joke and they look just like the soprano. <laughs> they look like <laughs> soprano standbys, like big guys, arms crossed, you know, across their chest, sit there and instantly pull the newspaper up in front of their face and, you mm -hmm. know, just not, not wanting to be there. And I'm, you know, very chipper. We're going to do an activity every 15 minutes for the next three days, <laughs> you know, so I was ready to, to have it not be accepted at all and, and started going through all these activities. Uh, it went really, really well. And after first or second break, I had a few of them come up to me and say, you know, we're really, really thankful to be able to do something because they expected to sit there for three days straight and just, you know, do nothing, so just, just listen mm -hmm. and just be expected to absorb information. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the, the big things in accelerated learning is that it's, you know, learning's not passive. It's all the active creation of, you know, learning and, and knowledge. Yeah. So they have to be involved if they're actually going to understand it. So it was all activity based for three days. It's exhausting as a trainer to try to do that and, and tons of preparation, honestly, to set up that much of it for that long of a class. But it went really well. Uh, ended up doing it for, I don't know how many other their plants, maybe 60 more of their plants in Canada and the U.S. It went that well. And we did those activities, you know, everywhere. So it went really, really well. I started talking about it at conferences and so many people were telling me, you need to, you know, share this. You need to put it in a book. You need to teach me how to do this. So mm -hmm. I really started not doing as much of it myself, but really developing the products to help other people be able to do the same thing and be able to use those activities. Wow. And, and so, so, I mean, I mean talk, talk about, about a maiden voyage, voyage with, with the yes. Soprano guys. I know, another big risk, or, right? So. Or, right. I mean, you did that for three days every 15 minutes? 15 minutes at least. We had activities, uh, wow. lots and lots of, and then rolling that out across the country in Canada was, was really tricky as well, just getting materials to people. Um, it was a, a big logistics exercise as well. Yeah. But it went, it went really well. It was, um, I just started doing it everywhere then and didn't even think twice that people would accept it. And, you know, I speak on the topic at a lot of conferences and people will say to me, oh, that would never work with my workforce. That'll, that'll never fly. My guys wouldn't do that. And mm -hmm. I think just, just have an open mind and give it a try because you'll be hopefully, and I think so, pleasantly surprised. Yeah. So can you give our audience an idea of like one activity so we kind of just can picture this in our heads or... 
a long, yeah. A real ahead. simple one. <laughs> one one mm -hmm. really simple one. Um, I have a whole book on these called Safety Sequence Activities. And any kind of activity, any kind of safety procedure that requires a specific set of steps. So you think like um, putting on a fall protection harness or cleaning up a spill or using a fire extinguisher, which, you know, as example I'll give is a very simple one. Um, I have each of those. I started off having each of those steps you know written out on a card and you make a set of each steps even something as simple as an index card because all of this stuff is really cheap too there's nothing fancy they can handwrite index cards with the different steps so say mm -hmm. for you know, how to use a fire extinguisher you have seven steps and you write it out give each set a card and you mixed up and then you have them have to stand in line each holding the card in the correct step you know faster than the other groups can do that so mm -hmm. for fire extinguisher that's really easy i do a 10 step one for lockout tag out that that gets really hairy because they always argue over it, which I love because like, wow, I'm having them argue over safety. This is great. Mm -hmm. But they argue over one or two steps and you know, who's right and who's wrong. And then if their order's not right, they have to try again. And it also throws in the competitiveness. Um, they get to race as against the clock. It brings in a lot of the um, gamification principles as well. So yeah. I started using that with the lockout tag out one, not just the words. That's where I started using images. And I know we've talked a little bit about the image-based safety stuff I do. The, mm -hmm. um, I started adding images instead of the text or sometimes both. So when you're showing a lockout tagout procedure, you know, 10 different illustrations of someone doing the lockout tagout steps and then, you know, mix them up the order, give them to mm -hmm. the, the different teams. Cause I always have people work in teams as well. And that's, that's for accelerated learning reasons mm -hmm. and then have them, you know, basically get up out of their seats and move around and stand in line in the correct order which mm -hmm. makes them get up to, which is always a good thing to add the, the physical part of it. And mm -hmm. they have to work with each other to come up with the, the correct order. So with the images, you know, we've talked about how a lot of people don't have great reading and writing skills. And we think it's just people that don't have English as their native mm -hmm. language, but it's, yeah, it's also, it's also, mm -hmm. you know, a huge illiteracy problem, which we don't even think about. And if, mm -hmm. if you don't have a fifth grade reading level, you're technically illiterate. So that runs into a lot of people. So mm -hmm. the images help everybody. It's always a good idea to, to throw images in there and, and not junk images. I always tell people with PowerPoint, you don't put like a cutesy thing in there just to have an image on your slide because everything should have meaning uh, related yeah. to the content. So the image-based safety sequence activities are uh, really effective because if they can't understand the text and they can at least see what I'm talking about in the image without being embarrassed to say, yeah. hey, I don't get this. So you said that people were, you know, you, you did this for a, a while and people were like, you should write a book. You should develop this. So did you? <laughs> the first one was, I think, 2006, which is a long time ago now, which is um, that was the safety fundamentals. You know, 77 games and activities was the very first one that that I did. And it just kind of spun off. Like I mentioned, the safety sequence People like that one activity, so now there's a whole book of just that activity. And you know, just the other ones that came after that are more themed based. There's um, Safety Lotteria is like a safety bingo game, which many people know, but Lotteria is a Mexican bingo game that uses images. So it goes back again to the, the image-based safety. And mm -hmm. there's a whole book of those as well too. So the, all the books after that first one really were more, more themed as far as specific collections of activities. Mm. Well, congratulations on being published too, by the oh, way. Thanks. Yeah, it's, it's fun. I love to write, so that's actually a really fun part of my job. Yeah, and, and so are you? Are you? I, I mean, I know that in the introduction we talked about the fact that you've you're you're scheduled in twenty twenty two to release a book that you wrote um, on behalf of the American Society of Safety Professionals. 
But do, um, I mean, you can tell us about that book if you want. But in terms of like your creative process now, are you still producing um, books? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And other content, like yeah, what does work look like for you today? Um, now I'm I'm really you know you mentioned also that I'm doing this newsletter now that the safety training net which is, you know, full of all of these resources, usually an activity or two, like I mentioned, there's sample stuff in all of these newsletters. There is a, you know, a free version, a paid version, and I kicked off the Spanish version two months ago because the the Hispanic Safety Professionals Group from ASSP was was strongly <laughs> encouraged me to do that because there aren't that many resources in Spanish. You know, there really are. We start looking at it, it's um it's really not that much out there. So for not a ton of money, I still have to pay a translator because my Spanish is nowhere near good enough to write this myself. Uh, I can do the Spanish version of it. So that just kicked off recently and it's, it's the same newsletter that everybody else gets, but the activities are all translated. Everything's you know available in Spanish too. Hmm. So um, Linda, who is the consumer of, of your, your books and materials and, and uh, the newsletter? They're all uh, safety people, like all over mm -hmm. the world. Like I just got mm -hmm. a message from someone in, in Venezuela, which was great, was really made my day. Because, you know, you sometimes you send this stuff out there and you don't hear back <laughs> a lot, like if it helped people. But at conferences, yeah. people always, you know, will find me and say, I love this activity. This worked out great. So I love the feedback part of it. Um, I just heard back from this, this person who said he met me 15 years ago at an AIJ conference and has been using this stuff since then. So that oh, part's wow. always really good to, <laughs> to hear. Yeah. Awesome. And so the, the project that you're working on for ASSP. Yes, that is yeah. a book mostly on uh, retention, attention, retention, and transfer because transfer mm -hmm. is the forgotten piece. A lot of the times where, you know, we do the training and first of all, we hope they remember it, which there are some things you can do to help them remember it and not just you know, sign a paper at the end of the class and leave, but then actually be able to use it when they need it. That's the transfer part. And that's mm -hmm. missing in, in so many places. And you know, we don't measure that very often either to see if they actually use it. But the, the transfer is really what this, this book is helping people to, you know, you have to plan for transfer. It doesn't happen by mistake. And you can plan for it in these activities and some of the follow-up stuff and even some of the pre-class things. So the book that ASSP now has, um, you know, it has, I'm done with my revision. So it's in their hands now. So hopefully it's mm -hmm. out um, in 2022 is the plan um, that covers all of those things. Wow. Well, congratulations. And and so people who might be interested in getting their hands on that book, will they um, go to ASSP? Yeah, ASSP um, has a little bookstore tab on their website. So eventually it'll be there. But so we have to get all the other stuff done. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. As long as we're um, talking about ASSP, I know that you're, you had mentioned earlier that you were a, a delegate and you went to your first conference, but you're still involved with ASSP. Do you want to talk about what, the, what does that look like? I've been involved for 30 some years, <laughs> I guess a long time. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I've been volunteering because I just really enjoy the volunteer experience, especially I think working for myself for so long, it's, you know, I call them my, my water cooler group. <laughs> you know, if I want to bounce an idea off someone, I have my ASSP colleagues that I will talk to. Mm -hmm. uh, I was very involved with their consultants practice specialty for a while, which is a, a great group of people that mm -hmm. would just share ideas and techniques. And, you know, I learned a lot from them. Um, and from there, I ended up getting involved with ASSP's foundation. And I, I tell people this story, even though it, it I want to say it doesn't sound great, but uh, I, one year I made a donation to ASSP, I think it was like $50, 
and I encourage everyone to donate. I'll do my little part there. Mm -hmm. And as a, as a donor, I got invited to the foundation had a reception at the annual conference. So, you know, as a consultant, you want to meet people and you want to network. Yeah. So I went to this reception and I, I walked into this reception and was just blown away by the other people in this room. They were everybody I ever wanted to meet in, in, in the safety world because they were all donors. They were all supporting the foundation. So they were they were all there and I made some great connections um, in that group and then just started being a regular donor to the foundation and ended up as a foundation trustee and then chair of the foundation for ASSP, which I stopped, oh. I think, two years ago now. And then from there, I moved to the, the board for ASSP where I am now. I'm the VP of finance. Oh, that, that is, is, that is fantastic. fantastic. And, and what, what a great, great tip, tip for, for anyone, anyone who's listening. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds kind of kind of weird. It's like, yeah, donate, not not you know, because you want to help people. <laughs> you want to go to reception, but you know, I, I do want to help people, and I did stay on, and I, I still donate it. But that's you know, I started thinking, wow, this is a great place to be, and I you know, just you get to go when you make a donation. Yeah, and so are you also involved um, in wise women in safety? With ASSP? Um, I'm a member. I've been a member a really long time. And, you know, before WISE was WISE, you know, we used to have our unofficial WISE meetings at the conference. We, you know, we put notes in the bathroom mirrors saying, because there were so few women there, <laughs> anybody yeah. want to meet, meet at Starbucks, you know, Wednesday at five. And we had our unofficial <laughs> little get together. So yeah. a lot of those original groups of people, there was maybe 15 or 20 of us after a few years um, are still active in WISE. But that's, mm -hmm. that's just amazing how how much that group took off. Like there's such a need mm -hmm. for people to, you know, have that place where they feel comfortable and safe of asking questions and, you know, meeting other people. Yeah. Right. Right. And yeah, thank you for that. Um, you were talking about 30 years or so in ASSP. I got a surprise over the weekend. I got this envelope in the mail and it was from, it was from ASSP and I'm like, it feels like a certificate and there's like a little bump in it. What is this? And I opened it up and it said, thank you for being a member for 25 years. Here's a, here's a lapel pin. And I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, it's like oh, time flies. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> how did that, how did that happen? <laughs> oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> anyway, that was, that was cool. And like, oh my gosh, it's been a long time. Um, uh, regarding volunteerism, you've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, yeah, what do you want to say about volunteerism and career path and volunteerism in general? I, I think um, something else I always tell people in addition to ASSP, you know, I was on BCSP's board for six years um, and now I'm on BCPE's board, but you don't know that one. It's the Board of Certification and Professional Ergonomist. And, you know, mm. obviously I really like board work because I keep putting my hand up but mm. um, and I end up on these boards. But I think there's so much value in, in kind of stepping at that level and seeing the big picture in things and, and helping to plan strategy and not just working on the day to day. So, you know, I encourage people to volunteer and I, I see these calls go out all the time that say, you know, new directors are needed, new board members are needed, you know, throw your application in. And so many people won't do that. They're, they sit back and they're waiting for someone else to say, Oh, I want to nominate you. You should do this, but you really just have to take control of your of yourself, and yeah. and step up, you know, and not be afraid and not be embarrassed if you don't get picked. Which you know, no one's going to know. It's, it's just this committee who looks at your application. But there's so many opportunities to volunteer at really high levels, and depending, even if you don't want to be a consultant, if you want to work, just the connections you make are invaluable. But people just hesitate to 
nominate themselves and you know, put their arm up. When I did BCSP, I remember reading the newsletter. I said we're looking for directors, and I thought, why not? So threw my <laughs> threw my name in the hat and just. I remember I was consulting. I did a lot of consulting for the Philadelphia Mint, which which I love. It's heavy, heavy manufacturing. And I remember being there by all the presses and getting a phone call from Roger Brower, who was their executive director at the time, saying, "Hey, welcome to the board." I was just just blown away that that this person was you know calling me to to welcome me to the board. So. I don't know how that happened. I wasn't recommended. I didn't have anybody behind me saying, you know, you should take her, you should do this. But I just threw my name in and I started on that board, which, you know, great, great connections working with that group of people. Uh, again, showing up the only female with, you know, 11 guys <laughs> and, yeah. you know, making my way there, getting mistaken by one of them for the secretary, which, you know, happens sometimes. <laughs> like, are you here mm -hmm. to take notes? Oh, no. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. you know, that happens. But I just especially younger people, just, you know, put your hand up and, you know, step in and just go for it. Yeah, right. I mean, and I mean, I don't know what the psychology of this is, but the whole imposter syndrome thing is a big deal. You know, I mean, you know everybody and, has it. <laughs> yeah, right. It, yeah, regardless, regardless of age and experience, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, really, you, you know, people who are listening, you have something to contribute. You have value. And absolutely, absolutely. You're never going to be, you know, 100% ready. <laughs> no. You have to understand, too. You read the requirements. It's like, no, you don't have to check off every single box to, yeah. you know, put your hand up for that. You know, you just, yeah. just try it. If, they, if you're not right, they won't select you. So <laughs> you can do your part by putting in your information. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it, yeah, this is... This is a this is a good part of your career path, Linda, to hear how you've involved, you know, volunteering and your entrepreneurship, and I, I know that, um, you know, being an entrepreneur is is kind of scary from an income perspective, and I know that you've you've uh, you'd previously mentioned something to me about you know multiple income streams. So for people who are yeah, so people who are into consulting and thinking about or maybe thinking about it, do you want to talk about what kind of some of those realities have been um, for you? Yeah, I think it's it's not even just consultants. I've done a lot of presentations called Mind the Gap. That's the, that's the name of it because you don't want to have, you know, a big gap in your resume or, you know, a big gap in your employment. And sometimes you can, but it, the longer the gap is, the harder it is to explain away sometimes. Yeah. So, you know, there's four really big reasons people may have this gap and it could be to leave to take care of a child. It could be taking care of an older parent, you know, a spouse, anyone who's sick. Um, a lot of elder care with people, no matter what age you are, it could be because you have an accident and you just can't work for yeah. you know, any period of time, or it could be that you're following a spouse or a significant other somewhere, which was you know kind of how I started moving around, mm -hmm. moving around the world. I think I mentioned to you after moving to London, I ended up moving to Munich and then Amsterdam, you know, following mm -hmm. my husband's job also, which I never could have done without having a consulting business or these other streams of income. So what the multiple streams of income really are is just you're not relying on one paycheck, just to, to put it really simply, because imagine you go to work and the next day you suddenly lost your job, the, you know, the company's out of business. You want to have something to fall back on, even if it's minor. Um, you want to have something else lined up. The, the more streams of income you have, the more stable that you know, you're going to be able to be going forward mm -hmm. and it could be anything. And usually these things aren't planned, you know, if, I mean, the baby's obviously planned, but if, if you have an injury and you can't work for a year and a half, then, yeah. you know, you need something there. And I, I always tell people to plant your seeds before you need shade. 
I think that's the way I, I always say it because just like, you know, I'll get messages on LinkedIn and probably like many of you saying, oh, I, can you have any jobs for me? Let's connect. You know, like they're, they're working on building these connections, you know, when they need the job because they just yeah. got laid off and, you know, it doesn't work that way in, in the real world or in, in, I guess your income levels as well. You need to plan for stuff before you actually need it. So even if someone doesn't think they need a multiple stream of income right now, it's really good to take the steps to set up you know, think what you might want to call it, think what you might want to do, maybe begin the rough draft of whatever you want to come up with. If you have an idea for consulting someday, check out that domain name now and save it and renew it every year. It's, it's like seven bucks a year. It depends on where you, you do it. Like there's certain things you can do to really set yourself up. So in case you have to make that pivot and start doing something different, you can do it pretty quick. Hmm. Great advice. And I think that, um, Younger generations in the workplace right now are better at that than older generations. And I include myself in the older generation piece. There's so many people who have side hustles. Uh, yeah, it's not even just safety. <laughs> you know, yeah, you right, see it's everywhere, exactly. which is, you know, it's it's great. And the gig economy is so much more popular than it used yeah. to be. I spoke at an ASSP chapter meeting and it was all older men and 60 plus. And this was my topic for them. And, you know, actually a couple of them worked for OSHA and they were about to retire and they thought, they'd be a consultant, that's fine. And we started talking about it. And part of this presentation, I give people, you know, an exercise to think about what they might do. We went back around the room and every single person but one wasn't going to do safety. One guy wanted to open a, a meadery. I was like, a meadery? <laughs> okay. And his whole thing was he wanted to have bees and honey and have a meadery. And, you know, we spent a while talking about a meadery at the safety meeting. But that was his plan for his, his backup plan, which was great. So it's just, it's really good to start thinking about what you would do. Yeah. If something were to happen, and I, I think with with COVID, you know, safety people are busier than ever. But imagine if it was some major crisis where all of a sudden they didn't need us anymore, right? Mm -hmm. What else would you do to have mm -hmm. some kind of other stream of income, and not just for the income, also for the the resume gap as well? If you're out of work for six months and you create some product or do something different on your own, create some webinars, you can use that to fill in those holes also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, for people who are listening are thinking, gosh, oh my gosh, another thing? Like, is there another thing to do? But one of the, one of the nuggets that I, that I heard you say, Linda, is the importance of um, making connections with other people. You know, I mean, it, it really is important in, in our field. So many of us are single operators. Um, it's important to, cre to, you know, create our own board of directors, our own tribe of people, our own trusted advisory group, call it what you will, within our professional practice that are outside of where we're currently drawing a paycheck um, for lots of reasons. And one of them is for, you know, if the bottom falls out tomorrow, you've got, you've got some friends. <laughs> that's why the volunteering part, right, is yeah. so important. That's, you know, I call them my water cooler people, but that's it. I've been working mm -hmm. by myself for so long. I know who I can go to to bounce off ideas or, you know, is this a crazy something I shouldn't be doing like a cheesecake again? You know, there's people that I can go to and just really get a check. So um, when you work by yourself, especially all that volunteering is building your network and your relationships, which are really key. Yeah. Yeah. So Linda, you mentioned um, pivoting back to being an author and creating a, a content, a product creation person. Um, talk, talk about, um, writing what is what do you love about it and what gets you inspired or how do you get inspired you know i i just i really i've always loved to write and i think the um the training books i do aren't 
as much writing as you would think like a fiction writer would do. It's more me developing these activities and trying to explain them in a normal way to people. So um, I just I just enjoy it. It's something that I've always done, you know, write and I, I write some stuff that's not safety, but you know, it doesn't ever get shared anywhere. <laughs> um, yeah. but I, I just I just enjoy writing. Mm -hmm. And so what what inspires you when you're, you know, like, when you're gonna hatch a new idea? You know, people ask me all the time, like, where do you get your ideas? Because I am a pretty creative person. Yeah. I do uh, a lot of stuff outside the safety world. I, I read so much stuff that's not safety related. And usually when I see something, my mind is just thinking, all right, how does this apply to safety? You know, how does this apply back to training? Or how can I use this in, in training? And that's where it really all comes from. Like you mentioned, you know, before we started, we're talking about scavenger hunts and along the same lines, it's like, okay, scavenger hunt can be used for safety and how's this going to work? So mm -hmm. it's always me just trying to spin stuff, I think, that I read or see and how it could have worked for us because mm -hmm. you really have to look outside of our field to get new ideas. You know, safety has yeah. been, you know, doing a lot of things the same way for a while. There's a lot of new stuff out there, but there's so much outside of health and safety that we can borrow from. And it's just looking at it and just, you know, curating. I, I spend a lot of time on Sundays, honestly, going through dozens and dozens of publications, newsletters, everything you can imagine to really look for those ideas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I, I do the same thing when I'm when I'm when I'm needing to be creative, which is my favorite thing to do. It's a lot of daydreaming. A lot of, you know, you you mentioned, you know, taking a three-hour break during the middle of the day to hike. That's when the daydreaming and the creativity happens for me. Um, I bet it's similar for you. You know, like you're processing, like, maybe all of those publications you just looked at. And I, I do, and I think I, I was telling somebody else that I have more ideas than I could possibly ever do in my lifetime. So uh -huh. the, the key is trying to figure out what I'm not going to do which is yeah. a little tough sometimes, but you know, if I was living another hundred years, that might work. But, mm -hmm. but in reality, mm -hmm. if you look at my list, it's like, nope, this isn't, this isn't going to happen. Yeah. I recently started a file, like an actual paper file called A Million Good Ideas. <laughs> and, and so when these things spring to my mind, I'm writing the idea down and then like I'm putting it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the hardest part. <laughs> Yeah. Right. And hopefully pull, pull them out from time to time and develop them. <laughs> oh, well, Linda, um, what else would you like to share with our audience, um, today from any perspective? Let's see, what else would I want to share? I think if we just went back to the part I said about, you know, stepping up, um, I just really want to encourage people to to volunteer. You know, it's a lot easier to not let somebody else do it, uh, you know, and complain about things and just say you know, people should do things a different way. But we need volunteers for, you know, for everything or nothing's going to happen or change won't get made and we won't improve. And that's for every organization. So I just really want to encourage people to just, you know, stand in and do something. It could be short-term volunteering. It could be long-term. It could be something that takes you a couple hours a year. It doesn't have to be a three-year commitment like a board position, you know, for many people. I would yeah. just really, you know, push that and just um, so people can be involved because you learn so much more than your day-to-day -day job by volunteering things that yeah. you might never, like as my, as a foundation trustee, I learned so much about foundations that I never would have <laughs> run into otherwise, you know, mm -hmm. in my, in my life. So, and you know, you think how you can meet people and just um, really benefit from relationships as well as helping other people. 
Mm-hmm. And do you volunteer outside of safety and health? I do more uh, short-term stuff outside. My, yeah. my big-time commitments are the uh, ASSP and then BCPE now. But just, mm-hmm. you know, the, the neighborhood stuff that's like, all right, we need people to come clean this for a couple hours. You know, I'll do that. Yeah. <laughs> right, we need some people to do this. Like, those are great because it's not a long-term commitment right. at all. I did um, volunteer with another organization, not safety last year, and it was kind of amazing how different they are than safety organizations. <laughs> like safety people are a certain breed, I think. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, working with some other groups of people and just how they think um, was very, I'll say difficult, but it was a learning experience that not everyone thinks like safety people think, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so got that side of it and it was really uncomfortable. Like, wow, they just don't operate. Like when you saw. This is not lit. This is not a linear process. What is, yeah. <laughs> I just did last week. I did a, a talk for ASSP leadership conference, uh, was titled three boards, many lessons. And I, I didn't say which boards they were, but they were 10 different lessons from different boards I've served on. And about half of them were good lessons and half weren't good lessons. And just the way things are done um, in some places just blows my mind still. <laughs> you know, just just no forethought, no planning. It's like, let's do this. Okay, we'll do it. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. we have no money, let's do this. But no, that's not ASSP. ASSP is a highly functioning, you know, well-run board. But just the experiences other groups have, it's just, it was really eye-opening to see that not mm-hmm. everyone operates at that level. Yeah, yeah. That sounds like an interesting talk. Um, but yeah, before we close things out today, um, anything you want to talk about with regard to mentoring? Um, yeah, mentoring is, you know, people always say, who's your mentor? I wouldn't say I've ever had one particular mentor. I more had, like you mentioned, the team of people. If I need something in a certain area or have a question with, you know, a particular problem, I know who I can go to in those areas. I don't have like a, a group I meet with all the time or somebody I've worked with for years and I do think it's good to have that, you know, opportunity to, to have a mentor. I've just never had that myself. Um, I do talk to a lot of people now. Um, and they say, oh, I'm your mentee. I'm like, really? You are? <laughs> like, I'm old enough to mentor people now, which is, mm-hmm. you know, kind of always surprising. But, you know, it same is. thing. I I um, mentor people, and I do think sometimes the topic-based mentoring is, is better. You know, I've talked to the consultants practice specialty about maybe structuring their mentor-mentee program that way, where instead of having one person do monthly, okay, well, I can talk to this new consultant about marketing. So if you have marketing, then, you know, call me because Mm -hmm. I may not know every single area and it's less of a time commitment as well. So I I do like to approach mentoring and mentee, being a mentee in that way, or more need-based or specific need-based than like an overall, you know, person you go to for everything. What a great idea. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Linda, thank you so much for sharing your story today. It's been fun. Um, as your company name suggests, it was, it has been fun and I learned something and I'm excited. I'm excited to continue seeing, um, the content that you put out to the world, um, for the health of, for the health and safety of people. Thank you so much for what you do. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me here. Hmm. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution toward the common good, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear past and future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or any other podcast player you'd like. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It really helps us connect the show with more and more health and safety professionals like Linda and I. Special thanks to Naeem Jaraisi, our podcast producer. And until next time, thanks for listening.